Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Someone said to me a long time ago, Jimmy, you've got to make a decision in your life. Do you want to be right all the time or happy? Because actually, laughing at yourself is also admission and an, an admission of your humanity. And if you're not human, then what the hell are you? Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment who are here to share their wisdom and their use of humour with you. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is an award-winning entertainment executive producer and movie mogul who has also been a comedian, actor, writer, producer and presenter. He is the co-founder of Hattrick Productions. The company behind shows like Derry Girls, Have I Got News For You, Whose Line Is It Anyway, Father Ted and Outnumbered, just to name a few. Before he made a name for himself producing some of the country's biggest television hits, he could be found making audiences laugh on the stage or performing and writing on the cult TV comedy Who Dares Wins. As the managing editor of Hattrick Productions, he was awarded a BAFTA for his contribution to the world of comedy television. However, he might be sorely tempted to give it back in exchange for seeing his beloved Everton climb back to the top of the premiership. Jimmy Marville, welcome to the Humorology Podcast. Thank you, Paul, and thank you for mentioning Everton. I was really enjoying the intro, and then you mentioned Everton. Um, I always say I've, I've got three sons and um, one of them is not at all interested in football. In fact, he said to me this year, uh, if it's any consolation, Dad, I've tr transferred my total lack of interest in Arsenal to my total lack of interest in Everton. And um, that's about as close as you got to them. But the other two are Everton fans. And this season, I had to say to them both, I'm really sorry that I've inflicted this on you. But it is, it is character forming and it does improve your sense of humour because you re really have to have a sense of humour to be an Everton fan. Well, welcome to the club because me and my son are season ticket holders. My son's 21, season ticket holders at AFC Wimbledon. So we right. went 26 games without a victory this year. So uh, that was kind of tough. But at least yeah. you had a little resurrection, didn't you? We did. Just was we managed to, to we dodge the bullet at the end of the season, and we're now we're still in the Premier League, just about. Well, we'll come back to football because right, actually okay. I, I want if, to talk... if, if you have to. OK, all right. <laughs> well, well, obviously a big Evertonian. You were brought up as an only child in Liverpool. Liverpool is, is well known for its comedy credentials. Yes. Was humour valued in your family at home? Yeah, well, I come from... A, I mean, I was born in the 50s and my mum and dad um, were both working people. My dad worked in first of all in the power station and then in Tate and Lyle sugar refinery my mother was a waitress and um and there was a lot of you know we did laugh a lot in the in the house there was you know my dad was a was a good storyteller and a joker 
and um, he didn't get on with my grandfather very well. He, I can speak about them all free now because they're all dead. Um, but my grandfather came to live with us when I was about four, four. My grandmother had been tragically killed in a car accident and he, aged 51 or 52, dumped himself on his daughter's doorstep and said, June, my mum, uh, you have to look after me. So my mother shipped my grandfather into the house, very much like the family in Derry Girls, where the grandfather and the father just don't get on. Yeah. And uh, my grandfather was a Liverpool supporter and my dad was an Everton supporter. And um, they just didn't get on at all. There was always arguments and, you know, disputes about various things. And anyway, one evening, my mum and dad and I went to see Goldfinger, uh, the Bond movie in the 60s. And um, <laughs> that evening, my dad christened my grandfather Goldfinger for some reason. So every time my grandfather came in from the pub, we'd hear the key go in the door and we'd be sitting in the living room watching the telly. And my dad would start down, 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 down. And he got the timing perfectly right. Every night, as my grandfather opened the door into the living room, he'd be greeted to my grandfather never worked out why he entered the living room to the bomb theme for years and years and years so my dad was a great piss taker i suddenly got an image of uh the royal family with your dad being somewhat like in my head like joe royal he wasn't as big as ricky tomlinson but he he was a he was um yeah, he was a he was a he was a joker, and you know he was a working man. He liked to drink, and he he liked his friends. Very often at parties, I'd see him with a group of friends, and they'd all be laughing at something he'd say, and then he'd um, he'd look across the room at me, and I'd be staring at him, and he'd kind of give me a kind of secretive wink, like to say that you know I've got them in the palm of my hand. Yeah, no, he, 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 Liverpool, I like. My son is uh, up in college in Liverpool and he's born in the bread in the South. He loves it. He loves the people in Liverpool. It's very direct. You get into the back of a cab in Liverpool and immediately you're chatting, you know, you're just talking about something and, you know, they're funny and not, not to be patronising to them, but in a way, you know, if a community like that didn't develop a very strong sense of identity and humour, and actually, it, life would be quite tough, I think, sometimes, because I think as a as a city, it's come under attack for all kinds of reasons and, and stereotyping. You know, I hate the stereotyping of the of the Liverpool person um, by by people in the south uh, who don't seem to really well, probably never been there. Um, no, it's interesting, though, but that humour grows. It seems to grow in places much better. My mother is from the east end of Glasgow yeah, and yeah. Uh, Glasgow has that. And I don't know if it's this port city um, idea, but humour, you know, seems to grow, you know, in cities where there's hardship and uh, you have to have something to react against. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that that. It's, it, it's a way of dealing with life where you don't take yourself too seriously, which I think is a really, I think you can take what you do seriously, but to take yourself too seriously. I sometimes meet people in my business who take themselves very, very seriously. And um, they're kind of legends in their own lunchtime. But the truth is that, you know, the fact is that if you take the piss out of yourself, before anybody else does. I thought that I always thought that Terry Wogan was brilliant at that. He was great at, at, at saying something about himself, which just put everybody at ease, you know. Yeah. And, and I think the people in Liverpool, they, they don't allow you to get too much uh, above yourselves. I mean, they, I, I remember when the docks were very powerful, you know, we're talking about strikes now a lot. And, you know, people would take the, my grandfather was a docker. And they were kind of well paid and, you know, it was a powerful union, but people used to take the piss out of them. And there, was a, there was a joke going around at the time where um, in the 60s, just how powerful the, the, dock, the dockers unions were. They had the management by the short and curlies. And the story goes that the, that the foreman comes out onto the Albert dock, 5,000 men waiting for the news. He gets his megaphone out and he shouts to the men, men, we've just had a six hour meeting with the management. We've got a brand new deal. We're going to get double the pay. Huge cheer. We're going to get double holidays. Huge cheer. 
and we only work on a Wednesday. And a voice in the back says, what, every fucking Wednesday? <laughs> and that kind of deflates the whole thing. You know, that's a kind of, you know what I mean? It's like, it just brings everything down to, yes, that's exactly what the attitude was. <laughs> well, but is it not the pricking the bubble of pomposity? Yeah. And, uh, and, and having uh, produced or executive produced uh, and made Have I Got News For You for over 30 years, yeah. isn't that what the show... Yeah. essence is yeah you're absolutely right paul it's about cutting down the tall poppies it's saying things about people who are have a huge influence in our lives um people who lead whether political groups or you know government organizations whatever they are or celebrities influences and paul and ian and their guests but mainly paul and ian each week in week out just bringing them down to size now we you know, we and it's getting harder because obviously the line over which you cross is, is much closer than it used to be. Um, people are much now, organisations are much more worried about causing offence. And a good joke will offend somebody somewhere. Uh, yeah. There is no question about that. And often I always say, well, offence is a subjective reaction to something. So if I'm offended by something you say, all it's telling you is that my values and my sensibilities have been in some way aggressed by your comments. It doesn't mean that your comment was wrong. So, but it's a difficult conversation to have because, you know, organizations like the BBC are very, un they're under scrutiny. You know, they get bashed around by the Daily Mail. And, uh, you know, it always amuses me that the, the, the Daily Mail is so keen on criticizing the BBC. And yet if the BBC was suddenly stopped or defunded by the government, the Daily Mail will be the first paper to say, whatever happened to our wonderful BBC? What a great loss it is. But it's all about control, isn't it? I yeah. mean, from a psychological perspective, or they want to control humour. And yeah. it's, I mean, doesn't any totalitarian state, the first thing they want to do is shut down humour and theatre? Yes, yes. Well, um, they can't bear it. They can't bear, like you said, they can't bear being reduced. They can't, the reductio ad absurdum of comedy where you'd reduce things so they're ridiculous. Whereas Paul and Ian, that's all they do every week is they bring things down to size. I mean, I, I'm interested to go down the route of uh, can satire really change things in politics anymore? And the, the reason I did that because uh, I was talking on the show with John O'Farrell recently. Oh yeah. And he worried that by laughing at something now, he worried that, and I, I see his point, that people think they've done their job by putting up a meme or making a joke. They think they've done their job, so they're no longer actually fighting and out on the streets. It's kind of like a tick box yeah. exercise, job done, and then the government carries on. Yeah, no, that's true. It's a psychological phenomenon, phenomenon, phenomenon called moral licensing, where you do one thing, and you think you've you've done the whole job. So, like in America, they 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 use the example. I voted for Barack Obama. I can't be a racist. Ah. And they say, well, do you employ anybody in your company who's not white? No. <laughs> well, but I can't be. A, so it's basically using one thing to justify the other thing. And, and I do. I worry sometimes on have I got news for you that we invite somebody on. Like for example, years ago we invited on Alistair Campbell um, to host the show, and we thought, great. We're going to now muller him about Iraq. And Ian steamed into him and basically accused him of being a war criminal. I mean, basically accused him of precipitating an unjust war, which is, of course, the worst kind of crime. Is War anyway is, 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 is the worst of all possible human endeavours, but an unjust war is the greatest of all crimes. And he kind of, when Ian did his rant, Alistair Campbell looked into the camera and smiled and said, I knew I should have stayed at home tonight. The audience laugh, and I'm in the box watching it thinking, are they laughing at Alistair Campbell or are they laughing with Alistair Campbell? And if they're laughing with Alistair Campbell, I'm afraid we have aided and abetted Alistair Campbell to rehabilitate himself. Yeah. And, and that's that that's a that's a kind of dilemma, really, is that you want these people on the show 
because you want them to be there because they were at the center of a major historical event, which we still haven't really got to the bottom of um, because of the duplicity of that, that whole government. You have to invite them on and then you have to take your chances. But most people come on to have a bad news for you. What happens to them is that they come off with the, the audience thinking, well, you know, he can't be all that bad because he did take it on the chin. Well, yeah, wasn't that the case with Boris Johnson, really, when I, I thought and, you know, having talked to people involved at the time that, to use your terminology, you mullered Boris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. And yet some people went, isn't that charming? And isn't he great? Um, because he, he can take a joke about himself. Yes. Well, of course, in those days, he was the editor of The Spectator. Um, or he was working on The Spectator. I think he may have been editor. So it's before he, he took political office. Um, but he, he uh, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, the research the BBC did shows that he was one of the most popular hosts we ever had. And I know that in the press, they say, oh, we blame Have I Got News For You for bringing Boris Johnson, you know, uh, making him famous and making him Lord Mayor. But the truth is that that's what the voters do. Absolutely. The voters do that. I mean, so what are you saying that the voters can't make up their own minds? I mean, the fact is we've lot, we've had lots of politicians on the show. Not all of them have ended up prime minister. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Boris Johnson was going to be prime minister, whether he was on Have Got News for you or not. That was his gig. That's all he wanted ever to be. And he would have done anything to get. I mean, he was voted. Um, he was nominated. Not many people remember this. He was nominated. I forget when, uh, you know, I, I guess about 15 years ago. When he did the show, he was nominated uh, to uh, best performance in a light entertainment show, a BAFTA, a BAFTA. You can check this out. So I go along with him. I take him along with his wife at the time. I have to say, perfectly nice. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say my personal interactions with Boris Johnson where he was a horrible person. He, he wasn't at all. He was very well-mannered and charming and... He sat there as the nominations were being read out. He sat there and uh, it was like, I don't know who it was, it was really, but the nominations are now for the best performance in a entertainment show are Anton Deck for whatever it was, Bruce Forsyth for Strictly Come Dancing, Boris Johnson for Have I Got News For You. You it It was an odd list of people, but Boris really wanted to win that award. Um, you know, he just wanted to win. He wanted to be at the centre of things. I'm not a Boris Johnson supporter. In fact, quite the opposite. And I prefer he was winning BAFTA awards for being funny on television than running the country. But I think we need to be mindful in our debate now, in, certainly in public debate, is what I've noticed is the lack of kindness in the way we argue about things these days and the lack of humour. And if we had more humour in our debates and less vilification and, and just the accusatory and taking people down completely. You know, it's just a very destructive way of running the country, I think, where everybody, either you're totally right or you're totally wrong. As you know, life isn't like that. Life's much more complicated than being totally right and totally wrong. I think that humour is a superpower. And when people, you know, have that humour, it can shift everything. And so Boris Johnson and we've had, you know, uh, you know, William Hague and lots of people from politics on the on the show. Boris Johnson, whatever you say about him, he is funny <laughs> on some level. So <laughs> from a psychological perspective, he's changing people's state. And, you know, that's a powerful thing. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that humour is a superpower? Coming from where I come from in Liverpool, in the ward of Walton, which has always been a Labour stronghold, is that my affections are I am centre left, you know. And um, but I've got to say that the game that we're playing at the moment is that Boris Johnson, you're quite right. The way he uses humour to sell his message is very effective with people and the British people. We love a posh person who can talk to us. You know, he's a kind of, he's a blokey kind of posh guy who, you know, Alex, I would say Alexander Armstrong is, is a, you know, he's the kind of posh bloke we all love because he's a, you know, he's a very nice bloke. He's very, he'll, he'll talk to anybody. He doesn't talk down to you. 
you know now is that an act on Boris Johnson's part probably but it's a good act I mean he's got the act down and he spent years kind of perfecting the act of the kind of rather spontaneous bumbling oh did I say that I'm very sorry um don't know what I'm doing kind of guy and it's very appealing it's it's disarming that's what it is whereas Keir Starmer is a bit like a headmaster at morning assembly (laughs) you can't wait for him to stop yeah and that's the shame is you know he's obviously a really decent man and I think it's more to do with the way we run our politics is that you know Gordon Brown is a very decent hard-working politician Hillary Clinton would have made a very good president but these are people who don't transmit that common touch that they're too aloof and the great thing about comedy is it connects you to people yeah, well, I, that's, do you think that we've been going that way since the JFK-Nixon uh, debate mm. in 1960 when it's, uh, television really took over, which is your no medium? And suddenly we, we believe, and I don't know how you feel about that, can you now be a great communicator in politics or in, in business without understanding humour or employing humour? I don't, I don't think, I don't think you can. I think that, I think that, I mean, the way we, I always say at, at Hattrick is that having fun at work doesn't mean wearing silly hats and, you know, being stupid. Having fun at work is, is, it's fuel. It's a fuel for good work. Is that you feel, you know, that you can, and with the way we run things here is that, you know, uh, 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 there's a lot. There's a lot of people who are laughing, and they're, you know, we're kind of because we're we're being honest with each other. Very, 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 very often, I think honesty provokes laughter. And a great comedian will tell the truth. A great comedian has a kind of shamanic function in society because they tell the truth. They they put into words what we've always known, and there they are standing up on stage, and they're telling the truth. And the greatest comedians that we have, especially modern comedians who now do talk in terms of more autobiographical terms. You know, so you'll get a Russell Brand or a Ricky Gervais or a Dave Chappelle or a Louis C.K. I mean, not notwithstanding what happened to him, the fact that he, you know, he 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 got himself cancelled or certainly seemed to. And then he's trying to rehabilitate himself doesn't take away from the fact he's a great comedian. Um, and he told he kind of told the truth, you know. Um, so I think the truth, the, the truth and humor are bedfellows. And who doesn't want to work with honest people? And honest people, you know, often are funny people. That's really interesting. That the the but the essence of the truth has to be there in all good comedy, doesn't it? Yeah. Because otherwise, people have to recognize. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Totally. Going back to. to to the docks, um, there's a there's a great story about, um, and I hope it's true. Uh, they clamped down on people stealing things from the ships in the city. My grandfather would always come home with a bottle of whiskey, or he, he once came home with a monkey. My <laughs> grandfather, in in the 1940s, my mum said he'd all, he'd be bringing things home from the ships. He'd nick things. Oh, they they all did off the off off the ships, and he said he bought this monkey for like a shilling off a Chinese sailor. No health and safety in those days, Paul. And he brought, he brought the monkey home and it stayed in this two bedroom house in Liverpool with my mother. His name was Joey. And it, it clung to my mother and it would attack people who went anywhere near my mother. And it grew and grew and grew and they used to keep it under the stairs. And in the end, it, it escaped at a party and it bit everybody and they, had to, they sold it to a circus. Um, so a lot of thieving was going on on the docks and they decided to clamp down on it. They put a policeman on the gate and you get search coming out. And every night you, you, you get stopped. And this, this little docker was going out one night with a wheelbarrow and he had a piece of tarpaulin carefully placed over the wheelbarrow. And the policeman said, what's in the, what's in the wheelbarrow? He said, no, not, not at all. He said, take the tarpaulin off. Took to taste the tarpaulin off, nothing in the wheelbarrow. All right, go on. Second night, the wheelbarrow comes out, tarpaulin over the... Take the tarpaulin off. He said, there's nothing in the wheelbarrow. Take the tarpaulin off. Takes the tarpaulin off, nothing in the wheelbarrow. Seven weeks he does this until they discover he's nicking wheelbarrows. (laughs) 
genius. So you see, there's the kind of, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful, he's worked that out in his head. And there's a kind of beautiful simplicity to that, I think. Your father realised that education was yeah. one of the ways out, apart from football, yeah. obviously. And, and then you took it very, very seriously, doesn't it, from a very young age? I did. Well, my dad, you know, he said, this, you know, there are two ways out. You know, you can, you can you know, football or education. And he said, I've seen you play football. So <laughs> um, dad was very bright, and, but he was made to leave school when he was 14, uh, despite winning a scholarship to, to St Edward's College, which is a, a Catholic um, grammar school in Liverpool at the time and there was no question my father was a highly intelligent man just and not didn't have uh, any kind of education real kind of deep education so he was keen and I went to a local comprehensive um, but um, it was a comprehensive that had just been turned to comprehensive after it being a grammar school so it really it was still it still was a boys school so it wasn't really a true comprehensive and they basically nailed together a secondary modern school, which was the kind of more technical school, together with a grammar school, uh, separated by a half a mile. And they called that a comprehensive. So I, I went there and the staff room was populated by really brilliant teachers. Um, and I was very fortunate that uh, I, I kind of stumbled across this man called Douglas Cashin, who taught Latin. And he said, oh, you know, you should do Latin. You know, you're good at French. Uh, try it. Latin so I did Latin and then at the end of that year he said to two or three of us why don't you three do Greek um we think you could probably do ancient Greek and I said really he said yeah he said you have to give up chemistry and geography to give to do Greek I said you had me a chemistry <laughs> I, I hated both chemistry and geography so I was up for and what happened was I went on that journey with him um and he drove us down to uh to see a play it performed in ancient Greek in Cambridge. Every three years, there's the triennial Greek play where the students perform a Greek tragedy or a Greek comedy. Uh, the year I went, it was a Greek comedy, but actually it could have been a tragedy. It was terrible. It was really unfunny. And, um, but what I noticed was how beautiful Cambridge was. And, um, and I began to read about Cambridge University and about you know, footlights and about all these other things. That you could do there and I just became completely obsessed with trying to get to Cambridge and he helped me this man and I ended up getting a place there uh, which you know, changed my life completely I mean you come from a, a working class background and you go through the kind of Cambridge system and I you know it, it, it did it mess with my head a bit you know I felt a bit outside of it all but then I got into football I got into drinking I got into the footlights you know, and when, when I found the footlights, I found my tribe. I found, you know, Rory McGrath was there. Clive Anderson was there. Griff Rees Jones in the third year. He, he was kind of there. Big, he was a big cheese at uh, Cambridge. Clive was president of footlights when I first auditioned for, for the footlights. And um, I always tease him now because he, he, he auditioned me without looking up from his newspaper. He's doing a crossword. And, um, and I, I didn't get the part. Um, and uh, so, you know, we kind of, we all found each other. And I think it's very important to find your tribe. I always say to my kids, you know, keep, keep looking, you'll find them and they'll be out there and it'll make sense. And you'll feel you're not alone. You can go on that journey and you have fellow travelers, which is really important. Well, I'm very interested because I think you're quite right about finding your tribe. You know, the, when I the first ended up at the comedy store, it was mm. kind of like, there are all these, outsiders or outliers mm. who, uh, who think and I thought I was a little bit mad before but actually there's other people who think that but you've got uh, I'm interested from your perspective you've got a, a, a self-confessed addictive personality and you were obsessive about getting into uh, Cambridge yeah uh, were you also obsessive about humor once you got into it was that another addiction in a sense well the truth is when i got there i was so paralyzed with fear um that i didn't audition for anything in the first year and i, I went along to the meeting it's called a squash it was a freshers meeting where they get all the freshers in to the uh to the student theater called the amateur dramatic club and it's a little theater in cambridge run for the students and up on stage was the third year, Anthony Root, who was the president of the ADC. 
and there was a second year representative and there were two first year representatives. And one was called Peter Bennett Jones. Oh, PBJ, who, yeah. who ended up being a, an agent and running Tiger Aspect. And the other was Nicholas Heitner. Oh, wow. And they were very confident and they were talking about how important it was to, you know, to come, come forward and audition. I thought, I thought, how did they get on stage? They've only been here a week, like me. But I have to say that, you know, that coming from where I came from, having social confidence was not, that wasn't on, that wasn't on the curriculum. Yeah. Whereas with kids who go through that educational system where they're taught to be confident. I mean, my kids have all been privately educated and they have, as my oldest son says, it's a social veneer, dad. It's wafer thin, but it gets you through the door. It enables you to shake somebody's hand, look them in the eye, say hello and talk to them and talk, at, you know, talk to them, not at them and not avoid them. And it's, it's a social lubricant, but it's very effective. Um, and I think a lot of kids, I'm involved with a charity now called Classics for All, where we're trying to get Greek and Latin back into state schools. Um, and uh, because, you know, successive governments have defunded the teaching of Latin and Greek. And they're subjects which are great social mobility engines, because if you're good at them, you can get into good universities. And, and you know, it, getting into a good university can change your life. You talked about that confidence issue. I, I mean, I completely agree. I went to a, a, a comprehensive school, 2000 boys. Yeah. Um, whilst it, uh, the Eatons and the Harrows teach you to belong and be able to walk into a room. I think you get a whole different kind of grounding and education from mixing with a variety of people. Don't you think that's helped you? Certainly in the sense of bonding with humor and people. Yes, I, 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 I'm, I'm, my kids say this. They say, you know, that they, they've gone off to university and they don't want to hang around with the same people they were at school with. You know, they want to meet other people and, and that's why they travel. I mean, my oldest son went around India on his own. My, Middle son went around South America. My youngest son has just finished his A-levels. He, he wants to go traveling because traveling does enable you to see things from a different perspective. And, um, and I do what, you know, I meet people who have literally gone from public school to Oxbridge to the city or to the law and they hang around with the same people. It's a tribal thing. And, and, and they're not really experiencing life as it is, you know, lived by many people. And having friends from different backgrounds is really, really important. And having friends that don't agree with you. I think these days, I worry that, that we, we only now can have a friend if you totally agree with everything I think. And I, I have friends who vote very differently to me. I have friends who think very differently about a lot of different things to me. But I love them. And they're great people. And I enjoy the fact they see things in a different way. And I worry now that well, just with social media is you only ever meet people who agree with you. And uh, it's, it's very impoverishing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, I, I think you're right. I think, but what, what happens, um, and when you meet people, you, re- you understand that actually humor is the biggest bonding tool that you can have between yeah. those people. Uh, but I think what happens is that um, society never lets these people meet because um, you uh, got out of it because you were very uh, driven, very intelligent, and you got to Cambridge, so you got to meet these people. Most people never meet them. And so therefore they think they're not like us. Yeah. They're completely different. So they, they can't even get to that level of having a joke because they've, they've already put them on a pedestal, haven't yeah. they? Yeah. And, and, and also there is that fear. Prejudice is always based on the fear of the other. And once you get to meet somebody, I always say it's very hard to dislike somebody you really get to know because you understand where they're coming from. This, this charity I'm involved right. with, we're very keen on getting state school kids to learn these only if they like them. And uh, recently we managed to get 15 kids from Liverpool and Preston and Blackpool to come down to Cambridge. And there was a, there was an open day where the teaching staff of Oxford and Cambridge were talking about classics um, and the, and the classical tripos at, at Cambridge and greats at Oxford. And I said, look, why, why don't we get these kids to stay in a Cambridge college? So I rang my old college up and they were brilliant. They, it was the end of terms. There were no students there. And we had these 15 young people spend the night in a Cambridge college. And the reason why I suggested that was if you wake up in a room, in a cloister court, in a Cambridge college, then you can immediately imagine yourself being there. And if you can imagine yourself doing something, then you can feasibly do it. If you can't imagine it in the first place, how on earth are you going to be able to achieve it? And, um, you know, I remember Paul Merton saying to me that, you know, when he did his first thing at the comedy store, he said, it went, you know, it, it went all right. It wasn't great. But he, he thought, oh, I can do this. I, I can imagine myself doing this. And, of course, then you go on the long journey of becoming proficient at it, which is very difficult. But nevertheless... There is a beginning and you've made the beginning and the first step on the journey is always the most difficult step. But I always encourage people, just give it a go. I've, I've done many crazy things in my life. I've never reg- regretted one of them, even the things that have gone horribly wrong. The things I've regretted are the things I haven't done out of a sense of fear. Oh, I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that you've... Um... <laughs> You've always been happy to take risks and and uh, and to fail, really. And I think that's what really successful people do. And in mm. a business sense, people should really look at that. And if I, I would say, if you fail, fail funny. Mm. You know, you get a story out of it, don't you? That yeah. you go. You oh yeah, always, it. always. We, we we've done some we've done some terrible programs. The great thing is that we're a bit like doctors. We bury our mistakes. You know, the, no one, no one. Rem- I can go through a list of programs now, and you'd have a blank face because you think, I don't remember that show. I don't remember that show. I mean, we we nearly. I, I think we nearly had David Jason's knighthood taken away from him. We did a show with him called The Royal Bodyguard, and um, it was a farce, and it was a really good script. It's just that it just didn't, you know, it didn't work. And yeah. David Jason is a brilliant, brilliant comic actor. There is no better. And these two guys who wrote it, wrote a show for me called Worst Week of My Life, which was a brilliant show. But, you know, getting a hit comedy show is like catching lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And it didn't work. And I remember one of my kids was reading the Daily Mirror at the time and said, why did the Daily Mirror not like you, Dad? And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a piece about how, how shit this program was and um and david was very gracious about it he said look these things happen don't worry about it the the fact is i always say to people younger producers here if things go wrong have 19 minutes feeling sorry for yourself and in the 20th minute think of something else to do just do the next thing because there's always the next the two most hopeful words in the english language are next time yeah Oh, that's brilliant advice for anyone, actually. But you've displayed extraordinary uh, resilience over your time. Do you think that humour aids that resilience? Do you think it gives a perspective? Yeah, I, I, I genuinely think that that um, 
that if you can, as I say, if you can laugh at your own misfortunes, I mean, obviously not immediately, because that would be kind of psychotic. But, <laughs> you know, when, when you look back on things that go horribly wrong, because you've survived them. See, there's a, there's a kind of survival thing, is that when I just went, recently went on a walking trip with Rory McGrath and Peter Fincham and Clive Anderson and Griffiths Jones, we used to have this, this group in the late 70s called An Evening Without. And An Evening Without was a kind of sketch group that we had. And um, so we started a WhatsApp group for our walking trip. We went to the Basque Country we, and we called our group Walking with Dinosaurs. <laughs> and um, and a lot of the trip was spent just talking about when we were young and about things that went horribly wrong and, you know, gigs that we did that were terrible. And, and we were laughing because actually that's we, we survived it. It doesn't matter. I always say to my children, if you can make as many mistakes as I've made and just keep going, it all works out in the end. And it, you know, it's, it's that old aphorism, you know, it'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. Uh, um, and it's comedy is tragedy plus time. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I say about getting good scripts that actually have both of those things in them. Like when Bleasdale was at his height of his powers, he could have a brilliant joke. Uh, I was asked to do a talk called My Favourite Things. And uh, I chose a bunch of things. One of them was Everton winning the FA Cup in, in 1966 when they came back from 2-0 down. Uh, much overlooked FA Cup final. Um, but there was one scene that Alan Bleasdale wrote in Boys and the Black Stuff when the Yozza's story, you may remember, with Bernard Hill. Yeah. Brilliant portrayal of a tragic a figure. Yeah. Gives a job. And he ends up in a confessional booth of, with a young priest. And it begins with a, a, a close-up of a biscuit going into a cup of tea, pulling out to reveal a, vic, uh, a priest. Tells you a lot about what Alan thought about the Catholic Church. The, a very bored young priest. Suddenly, Yozza uses faces at the grill. He's saying... I'm desperate, Father. I'm desperate. My name's Yozza Hughes. I'm desperate. And the father says, we don't use first names here, my son. And it goes on like this until the very end. The priest gives in and says, all right, my name is Daniel. You can call me Dan. And at the end of the scene, he says, my name's Yozza Hughes. I'm desperate, Dan. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, I did that to 200 people, and they, I showed them the clip, and they laugh. And I said, now, that, that joke at the end of that scene... Did that in any way rob you of the tragedy of that man's circumstances? Everyone went, no. I said, well, I tell you what, if I'd have sent that script into a drama department and taken Alan Bleasdale's name off it, the first note I would have got was, take the joke off the end of the scene. It's robbing it of the drama. No, it's not. It's highlighting the drama. And that's what humour can do. Yeah, and heightens it, really. Yeah. You talked about Everton again, and I yeah. wanted to come back. Do you people who don't like football and miss something in the sense of the humour? Do you think the whole experience of uh, football and football people and humour is vital to that whole um, essence of it? Certainly the banter, you know, and, and like I say, if you live in Liverpool and Everton lose one, you know, lose the weekend, Liverpool win, you have to develop some kind of carapace, some armour to protect yourself. So yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, and again, it is that tribal thing of 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 uh, you know some of the um, you know some of the songs which are broadcastable, you know, can be very insightful. Um, well, as a football fan, you know, I just love I I love uh, talking about football. I love going up on the train with Everton fans, and invariably we talk about you know the times when things went wrong um because that's part of being a fan i mean i always i kind of now feel sorry for man city fans because they're like lottery winners yeah you know they can't believe manager. their luck and so now they're rather regal is if any if, if if they lose a game they're suicidal yeah um and i'm so pleased for manchester united fans now is that they're experiencing the real full you know 360 degree experience of being a football fan where their team is just abysmal we had um, Kevin Day, who uh, you've worked with for years yeah. on, uh, and uh, obviously a huge Palace fan. And he said football is the baseline of his life. And there are times when he's deeply miserable and he'll go to football and it will change his state. And, yeah. it, it, and he said it's an escape, but more importantly, a sense of belonging. And yeah. I, I kind of really get that. 
when well my dad took me to you know to football when I was about uh, Everton was about four years of age and I've been going ever since and I take my sons along and it is that it's a kind of thread you know it's not just about football it's about your family and you're right I mean Kevin's right it's mood altering food yeah. you know football is definitely mood altering and that's why in a way, you know, Everton's football ground is right in the middle of the community that I was born in. I was went to the school next door when I was a kid. The primary school is called Gladys Street. I went there from the age of five to 11. My, my family home is temp, a 10 minute walk from Everton's football ground. And it will be a, a shame when it, I mean, it's right that it's going to a bigger stadium somewhere else, but it'll be a shame because that, that football ground sits right in the middle of these, of these, of these terraced houses. So the aerial view is a patch of green surrounded by the community which it served. And uh, so it's all about that. It's about community. It's about your history, about your family history. And uh, uh, it's been a fantastic aspect of my life. I, I, I take my football uh, very seriously. Well, and actually it, it, it probably means that you'll have a uh please got a, a long life because one of these studies that, that, that they've done is that uh, they found this um, anomaly in America when they were studying about how long people lived and they found a place where they lived on average 13 years longer than everywhere else. And all these social scientists went, we must have discovered the most healthy place in the world. I bet they're all vegans. They don't smoke, yeah, yeah. they don't drink and everything. And when they got there, there were overweight people smoking, drinking, but they had this extraordinary community. Anybody's barn fell down. They all yeah. went around and did it. And a community is what presents longevity. And what do you get in communities? You get laughter. You get humour. Totally. It, it brings people to that space. You've been very honest over the years. And I just want to touch on this yeah. briefly because I'm interested in uh, about your struggles with drink and drugs in the yes. early days. Yeah. Was humour important to that recovery and is it still important to maintaining good mental health totally i mean i um you know regularly i, I meet other people who who are recovering alcoholics and addicts and um and we talk about things you know we talk about our week we talk about things that happened and it normally ends up with us laughing at the experiences that we've had uh, I, you know you hear some great things one bloke could have been describing my family he said he said, my family said we like to drink. In fact, the only time we refused to drink was when we misunderstood the question. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I came from that kind of family. Um, and, you know, it, it definitely, definitely uh, that gallows humour. It, again, it's the, it's the humour of the survivor is that you're sitting in a room with people and they've all come back from that brink of addiction. Then there is a kind of inner knowledge that you've been very lucky you've survived it. And, uh, and also you can't bullshit a bullshitter. You know, you're talking to people about things and it's very, it's very in a healthy way. It deflates the ego. You know, it brings you back down to earth about what is really important. Um, so I would say that having fun and being, and having a laugh is absolutely essential to mental health. I, if you look at Donald Trump, a man who never has ever said anything remotely funny in his life, or certainly not in public, and a man who seems to have no ability to be teased, um, you know, is florid mental illness. Florid mental illness. Margaret Thatcher, towards, certainly towards the end of the 80s, florid mental illness. Um, you know, just the inability to see yourself in any other way other than being right you know someone said to me a long time ago jimmy you're gonna make a decision in your life do you want to be right all the time or happy mm, because actually laughing at yourself is also admission and an, an admission of your humanity and if you're not human then what the hell are you well i i couldn't agree more and it leads me on beautifully to uh, because you've been fabulously successful in business for many years if i asked you to write a business case for other people in business for why humor is important what would you include in an actual business case because you've talked about you make sure people have fun at hat trick yeah. for other people why was why is it important i once 
attended. We sold Hattrick to a private equity company in 2002. We sold half the company and they were very nice people. Um, and um, the first board meeting, I had to report that a show we were making in America, which would have made us a fortune, had been cancelled. And at the end of the meeting, the man who ran the private equity company said, wow, he said, your business, he said, it's quite, uh, <laughs> quite volatile, isn't it? He says, is there anything we can do to help mitigate some of the, you know, the ups and the downs of it all, the kind of roller coaster nature of this business? And I said, well, I don't know. I, said, I was actually thinking of getting your seats at the board table fitted with safety belts <laughs> so you could strap yourself in. And he laughed. And the thing is that he realized what he just said was ridiculous, that there is no way of creating an atmosphere where you're making television and there's a certainty to it. Creating, creating TV hits is a very uncertain business. You don't create them very often and there's a lot of failure along the way. Um, but I, I, what I'd say about you know, employing humour is that it is, like I said, it, it, if you can make a joke about yourself, I once attended a course at the behest of this private equity company, he said, look, all of our portfolio companies, their, their leaders go on, this, go on this day course. And we had this man who's a professor of business at the London Business School, right? And he was the son of Terence Alexander, the actor who was in um, Bergerac. He played Charlie in Bergerac. And he looked like his dad, his name was Marcus Alexander. And I thought, you know, I was sitting on my hands thinking, oh my God, this guy's a professor of business. Jesus Christ, this is going to be a boring 45 minutes. And he said, hello. He said, yes, I'm a professor of business. I'm the kind of person that looks at a business that's working perfectly well in practice and then says, ah, yes, but does it work in theory? Right. And he, disar he disarmed everybody because he, he made a joke about, in a way, how ridiculous his job was. Yeah. And now I'm listening to him. Now I'm really listening to this guy because I'm thinking, this guy's unusual, mm -hmm. right? So it's about how do you open a door through which you can walk and have a real conversation with somebody? I think humour is a fantastic key to open that door. Because if I come in and tell you how brilliant I am and all the great shows that we've done and all that thing, the, the drawbridge comes up because then you start being defensive and you start thinking, well, I'm going to tell him how great I am. Because if I come in and say, my God, I've had a shit morning, this, 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 and this happened, and we have a laugh about it, then what are we? We're both human beings trying to make sense of our lives, which is a much more accurate description of me than someone who, if you read out my CV, someone said, ne never confuse your CV with your real life. Oh, lovely. Because actually, if you can bring your own humanity into what you do for a living, well, you feel better about yourself and everybody working with you feels better. I say to my kids, the most powerful thing you can do in a room full of people is say, I don't know. I don't know. What are we going to do? I don't know. And then other people come in and say, well, what about this? And what about this? If I walk into a meeting saying, listen, guys, thump the table. Listen, this is what we're going to do. Everybody then is shut down. So it's about, I think, humour allows you to go into a room and say, look, I'm a bit of a fuck up. I don't know what I'm doing. What are we going to do about this problem? And therefore, creativity is allowed to blossom. Yes. Because you've, you've created the atmosphere whereby people are allowed to be creative. Yeah. And in, and in a writing room, I think it's important to say, all right, how about this? I said, this is a terrible, this is not the idea. This is the terrible idea. How about this? Yeah. And then you, you pitch something which you know isn't that great, but then they've seen you pitch something in the room that is not that great it makes it a safe space for people to take their trousers down, you know? Fantastic. That, I, I love that. Absolutely love that. We've reached the point in the show, Jimmy, which we yeah. like to call quick fire questions. Oh my God, okay. Quick fire questions. Who is the funniest business person? Now you've worked with uh, oh, okay. pretty much every other com comedian who's known to man, but somebody in business, who you think is funny? Well, actually, I, you know, uh, and I don't know him that well, but whenever I've heard, I've spoken to or heard Michael Grade, there's a man Grady. who can tell a funny anecdote about himself. Well, that, it's funny you said that, because I mentioned William G. Stewart out of there, and he did the eulogy at William G. Stewart's funeral yeah. because Grady used to be uh, Bill's agent. Yes, 
and 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 michael's done most jobs in the industry and he's got funny stories mainly featuring himself not getting it right you know uh, and and it's a very as i say it's a very disarming uh uh thing but i mean and I, you're right i met lots of funny people my my i mean rory mcgrath is makes me laugh more than anybody else in the world and uh and my oldest son is objectively a very, very funny bloke. Um, but I think Michael, in terms of business, um, uh, in my business world, I think when I think about it, he, in he instinctively came to mind. No, that's brilliant. And just so you know, three people on this podcast in answer to this question have mentioned your name. Oh, blimey. That's, okay. That's, well, it's always nice to know, isn't it? Yeah. What book makes you laugh? Oh my God! Well, literally anything by P.G. Woodhouse. I actually think I've sat on a tube uh, reading P.G. Woodhouse, laughing my ass off. Is that his, his the way he can manage a sentence? I mean, I remember his description of a character whose name I forget now, where he said he 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 looked as though he'd been poured into his suit and had forgotten to say when. <laughs> Superb, you know, it's just that, and it's elegant, and it's funny, and it's and it, it just pictures. He, he paints pictures, um, so I think there's that. And I, when I was a young man, I read Pacoon by Spike Milligan, Spike. which again just made me laugh out loud. Yeah. Oh no, brilliant answers. What film makes you laugh, Jimmy? A funny film. Thing is, when I when I look at films, funny films, I'm always thinking. I'm always deconstructing them in a, in a way um yeah and um it's like comedians watching other comedians their yes. reaction is always like well, funny you go funny uh, that's funny you're not laughing no, i remember no. i remember once I, my son my, my eldest son who, who who um wants to write he and i went on a the, the robert mckee thing the robert mckee oh, yeah and and that and that day it was the genre of comedy and he said um these people, he said, I have my utmost admiration for. They are in the most difficult genre they can possibly be. And he said, and they're some of the angriest people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> <laughs> he said, think about their terminology, punchlines, gags. And, and our Dying. homework. Uh, yes, killing. I killed them tonight. <laughs> and our homework was to watch A Fish Called Wonder. And we went through A Fish Called Wonder, which actually has some very funny bits in it. Although, I, if I'm honest, I find it a bit creaky these days. And there was a scene, he goes through it scene by scene by scene by scene. And Joe had said to me, he'd been on the course the day before where they were discussing action adventure films. And he said to me, it's full of people that they put their hands up for no reason just to say something. Honestly, they're just assholes. So I think he was saying to me, don't put your hand up, right? <laughs> yeah. So we come to a scene, you may remember where they go into the diamond dealers to steal the diamonds and Kevin Klein has a tiny bow and arrow and he uses the bow and arrow to go through the bars and hit the uh, the button which opens the gates. They go and steal the diamonds. On the way out, he puts an apple on a guy's head. And you think, oh, what's he gonna do now? He does nothing, he just walks out and the apple falls off the head in a wide shot. And he stops the scene and Robert McKee says, all day we've been talking about setup and payoff, setup and payoff. Why did he put the apple on the head? And someone said, put the hand up. And Joe's looking at me saying, what did I tell you? They all put their hands up. Um, oh because he's put the apple on the head to invoke the William Tell moment. And Robert McKee said, yeah, but what, there's no payoff. So he said, what, what would be the payoff? And so a lot of people were pitching their payoffs and he's going, no, 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 no. I can't now not put my hand up. I put my hand up, right? And Joe's staring at me and he says, yes, guy at the back. I said, my feeling is they shot this. It was an improvised moment and they didn't have the footage to cut it out. It's a terrible moment in the film. And he said yeah. to me, have you been to my course before? I said, no, I've just lived through that moment a million times where you haven't got enough coverage to get a terrible moment out in a comedy that you want to get out because John Cleese is in love with Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein's improvised that moment on the day. They've all laughed their asses off thinking it's the funniest thing. They've gone into the edit. It's a really unfunny moment. So a long answer to your question is that I love, you know, Steve Martin, back in the day, anything with Steve Martin in used to make me howl with laughter. The Jerk, still. The Jerk, has, yeah, has Man with Two Brains. When, yeah. when he was on form, I think Steve Martin was hard to beat in terms of movies. But also, I loved, 
more gentle comedies like The Lavender Hill Mob. You know, I grew up watching those with my mother on a Sunday afternoon. Those kinds of films as well, I think, have a real place in my heart. We're going to take a shift to the other side. And I know that you're going to have a lot of opinions about this because I know your um, thoughts on cancel culture and everything. But the question is, what's not funny? In terms of subject matter, I don't think there are so few things that are not funny. I I always found, you know, being preached at is not funny. I I think that um, there was a, you know, with the birth of the comedy store, of course, it, it released into the community thousands of people who thought they were funny. And um, and I think that um, a good joke will bite somebody on the bottom somewhere and it will cause offence somewhere, like, like, like we've discussed. But I think that, you know, you, you, you could go through, you know, cancer, paedophilia, death, all kinds of things, but in the right hands. If you have the right approach to any subject, you can be insightful, satirical, and funny about it. Um, you just got to tread very, very carefully. And, uh, you know, you can do a, a, a comedy which has a racist character in it or a, a, um, a, a sexist character in it. And these days you'll get the note saying, the show's a bit racist. You say, no, it's not. The character is racist, but in the show, we see this character getting their comeuppance. But in order to portray somebody as a racist or a sexist, they have to be racist and sexist in the show. It doesn't mean that the show is that. And I think that's the debate. Is it's be- The debate, because a lot of debate now is on social media, which absolutely doesn't allow for any ambiguity or nuance or complicated debate. It's just basically black and white. You're right. You know, I'm right. You're wrong is it's getting harder and harder to to make those jokes. I think if that's the kind of way you're heading with this, it's getting more and more difficult to to have ambivalence in jokes where you'll you'll tread that line. The comedians like, you know, Louis C.K. and Russell Brand and Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle, they tread that line. They make you think about things. Absolutely. What word makes you laugh, Jimmy? Well, there are classic words like cucumber, of course. Um, and if you say a word often enough, it, it can, it, it, you know, it can, um, I remember once, uh, doing a, doing a show with David Crane, who wrote Friends and uh, Jeffrey Clary, brilliant writers. And they wrote a show called Episodes, which we did here. Great show. Um, and there was a character in it, Matt LeBlanc got off with a very nice young woman and, um, she was telling, um, Tamsin Gregg and Stephen Mangan the two English writers who are in the kitchen with Matt and this young woman. And obviously Matt and the woman have spent the night together and she's in his shirt, in one of his shirts and they're having coffee. And she's telling a long story about how she met Matt in Jamba Juice, Jamba Juice. And she keeps saying Jamba Juice, Jamba Juice, Jamba Juice. And in the end, Tamsin just says, can you please stop saying Jamba Juice? Because in the end, if you say something often enough, it always sounds ridiculous. And cucumber uh, sticks in the Neil Simon Anything with a cut in it. Yeah, it's Neil Simon. It's the Sunshine Boys, isn't it? Lettuce is not so funny, but cucumber always gets a laugh. Yeah, exactly. You went to um, Cambridge. uh, You think, would you rather be considered clever or funny? I actually think it's a great barometer, isn't it? Again, I mean, I hate to keep using Donald Trump, but he's a very stupid man because he's not very funny. And I think they go hand in glove. I think that anyone who can laugh is demonstrating an intelligence and a resonance with what is really going on. So if you can, if your mind is that sophisticated that you can enjoy, ingest a funny remark, make sense of it, and then involuntarily it goes to your, what Ken Dodd would call, you know, your your kind of, your funny muscle, is that then I think you are naturally, you know, you're not a stupid person if you can laugh. And in fact, the French have a joke, unbelievably actually, you can't take a man seriously who doesn't laugh. Uh, no, very nice. Even the French have spotted that, for goodness sake. And finally, Jimmy, yeah. desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? Oh, my God. I don't really do jokes. Um, there was a... There was a j- I was once in Ireland, and this old guy said, uh, your company does Father Ted, right? So suddenly he thought, 
I'm the bloke all day going to tell jokes to. So he told me a thousand jokes in a day, this, this old Irishman. And uh, there's one joke he says, he says, is a guy, is a, is a duck, a duck goes into a pub and he asks the barman for a pint of Guinness and a pie. And the barman is, oh, is that for sure. And he gives the duck a, a pint of Guinness and a pie and the duck does his crossword. And the barman says to the duck, what, what brings you around here then? He said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a plasterer. I'm working on a building site. I'm a plasterer, the duck says. You're a plasterer? He said, yes. So the duck comes in every day and he asks for a pint and a pie, does his crossword while he's working around the corner as a plasterer. And then one day a guy comes in and the barman pulls him a pint. He says, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm with the circus and the circus is coming to town next week. And uh, the barman says, well, Jesus, I've got someone for you. I've got a talking duck. I've got a duck. He comes in here every day. He asks for a pint and a pie and he's a talking duck. You should, you should see him. And the man who runs the circus, well, I'd, like, I'd like to meet that. I'd like to meet that duck. He sounds right up my street. So that later on that day, the duck comes in and the barman says, listen, I've got something for you. The circus is in town next week and they want to see you. And duck says, really? He said, yes. He said, so the circus, remind me, it's like a tent, isn't it? Right. And it's got, it's got round canvas walls, right? Round canvas walls. They're trying to, he said, he said, well, what the fuck would they need a, a plaster for? <laughs> Like I say, I don't tell jokes, but that that one did make me laugh when it, when he told me. He told it a lot better than I did. No, no, you told it beautifully, and you've been. Can I use the f word on your podcast, by the way? Fuck it, use it. Okay, okay, fine. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes you have to use the word f. You've got to use it. No, and and by the way, the rhythm of it is what works. Yeah. Anyway, Jimmy, thank you so much Thanks for the, your beautiful. Um, humor your beautiful humility and being a wonderful guest on the humorology podcast thanks paul it's been a pleasure it really has the humorology podcast was hosted by paul barros and produced by simon banks music by steve hayworth creative direction by les hughes and additional research by helen sykes please remember to subscribe like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts this has been a Big Sky production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.